Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well done, and thank you for uncovering Whitehall Sources, your new insider podcast on politics, brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels with excellent rooms in exceptional locations and where thoughtful teams deliver heartfelt hospitality. A bit like number 10, but with The Resident, evening drinks are from Justerinian Brooks. They don't get wheeled up a road to you in a suitcase. Thanks to The Resident, your favourite podcast starts now. Is that £6 million of taxpayers' money better spent on rifle ranges in Winchester or driving up standards in Southampton? Whenever he attacks me about where I went to school, he is attacking the hard-working aspiration of millions of people in this country. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald. This week with Kirsty Buchanan, a former advisor to Liz Truss when she was Secretary of State for Justice, and Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. And also on the podcast this week, Frankie Leach, who was an advisor to Jeremy Corbyn when he was the Labour leader, the leader of the opposition. This week, as we take you behind the door of Number 10 Downing Street, we'll consider whether Rishi Sunak's honeymoon ever existed and then whether it's at an end, and what brought it to an end. Also this week, party discipline. Is this a real sign of problems for Rishi Sunak, and what else could still unravel? Plus, Frankie takes us behind the door of the leader of the opposition's office. A tricky one sometimes, because as she'll tell you, there's been at least one occasion where it was barricaded. Of course, you can get in touch with the podcast anytime. You can email hello at whitehallsources.com. We'd love if you could stick around, follow the podcast, subscribe as well. You'll get all of our weekly episodes as they drop. And you can find us online. Just search Whitehall Sources on Instagram, on Twitter and on TikTok for extra clips and to leave your comments. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. We've made it to episode 12. And this week we've got Kirsty Buchanan with us. Kirsty, hello. Hi. And also a lovely appearance from Frankie Leach, who used to advise Jeremy Corbyn when he was Labour leader. Hello, Frankie. 
I am. Uh... Just a little inside track as well for you podcast listeners. Myself and Kirsty and Frankie all used to enjoy getting up at five o'clock together every Wednesday uh, on Times Radio Early Breakfast. I think we all have fond memories of those days, don't we? I, I have barely any memories of those days. They were all a blur. But when we first started, I used to get up like really like half an hour before and prep and all this sort of stuff. And by the end, I sort of stagger up about five minutes before we were due on, blather my way through 10 minutes and then go back to sleep again. There was definitely one time where the producer rang me and that was what woke me up. When I asked oh, no. Paul, he was like, are you ready to go on? I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you guys were very diligent about doing an early alarm to talk about politics is not everyone's cup of tea so um i will forever be grateful for that uh, we are the ogs the ogs exactly exactly um and another behind the scenes news um you joined me from the isle of lewis this week at my parents house um so i'm literally so if i sound a bit different it's because i'm using a microphone that i basically used to use for karaoke when i was about 12 years old karaoke were you doing uh, you, you don't want to know frankie that's how i got so good at it um <laughs> you know i'm second to none nowadays <laughs> uh, so yes welcome to the isle of lewis for this episode of whitehall sources today there's a few things we want to get at first of all rishi sunak's honeymoon uh, we'll, we'll get to that that's going to be our kind of big focus of the day what that means what he stands for what Keir starmer stands for and we're recording this on Thursday morning, the 1st of December. So what does winter look like, actually, for these politicians? And with that in mind, I think one of our focuses will actually be strikes and strike action, which is uh, bubbling, continuing, and indeed picking up pace. Since we last spoke, Matt Hancock has done actually quite well at I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is, I think, just something to reflect on. Obviously, we've touched on it on the pod over the last few weeks, and rightly so. Did third place, Kirsty, that defied our expectations and... What does it mean? What can we read into it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it defied mine. I, I thought he would do all the Bush Tucker trials uh, and then going to get voted out relatively early. Because he did the Bush Tucker trials with kind of good humour, didn't make a drama out of a crisis on it, actually got loads of stars for the campmates and what have you. Uh, I think people got bored of putting him up for the Bush Tucker trials because it wasn't that entertaining telly. So they dropped him from doing that. And look, you know, we said at the start of it, he wanted to go on to show people that he's a nice guy. That The Matt Hancock I knew when I worked at Number 10 is pretty much the Matt Hancock you saw on television. I don't think there was any sides to him on that. The public affair, and we've said it a million times before, you know, the world is not Twitter, right? So I think that's what that result shows. I think there, there's also been a very much a, a consensus, and you, in your words, a tedious consensus, potentially, Kirsty, on the podcast that, that actually we, we recognise the difficulties that it presents for people who have got really traumatic COVID experiences, actually, to see somebody who was such a figurehead on the telly every day, etc., etc., um, on TV. But Frankie, I wonder if there's, a, there's actually a split here that, that, as we say, I'm a celebrity and political opinions are not necessarily what you see on Twitter. And actually... This, this became about entertaining television and maybe we're overcomplicating it looking beyond that. I think it's a classic example, isn't it, of the Westminster bubble, right? Which is that when Matt Hancock was billed to be on I'm a Celebrity, it spurned op-eds and all these big conversations and kind of people chatting about whether this would be his kind of big forgiveness, would he even be allowed to return as an MP? But I think when you actually get down to the crux of the issue, it's exactly that, right? He was pretty funny on I'm a Celebrity, and I think people have got short memories, and I think that because 
when that affair came out, it was such massive news in Westminster. I guess maybe we made it into such a big thing in our heads and we didn't forget that, you know, as politicos. So then when he went into the jungle, we were expecting the response to be based on what we saw as a massive story. Whereas I think for a lot of people, if you're not someone who's massively traumatised by what happened in COVID and you don't have that personal issue with him for breaking the rules, you kind of might just think like, yeah, the guy had an affair, he got caught out, uh, it was pretty crap and awful. And now he's gone into the jungle and actually he seems like quite a funny guy. He seems quite sorry about upsetting people. And there was a, quite a few moments, weren't there, that were clipped. They went round on social media, TikTok in particular, mm. where he actually came across quite human. So I'm not surprised in the slightest. I think it's a really different way of looking at it than maybe we would have done in Westminster at the start. Yeah, perhaps that's a bit of a shake up and wake up as well. Karis, you mentioned you knew him a bit when, you know, in your time in number 10. And you said that he wasn't actually that different on the telly to what he was in person. What? How would you describe him, though? Like, what, what actually was he like? I mean, I used to describe him like Tigger, you know, and actually the one thing I would say is slightly different, and I don't know whether that's, you know, a poor diet of kind of rice and crocodile feet for three <laughs> weeks or whether it's because he's been humbled by some of the experience he's gone through. He's less uh, kind of bouncy and upbeat than, you know, than the, than the, you know, the Hancock that I knew, but he was a very energetic, very... Uh, yeah, optimistic, full of beans, full of energy. He loved his briefs. He got really involved in them and was always a uh, enthusiastic sort of inputter into sort of cabinet discussions. So yeah, I mean, I yeah. So like I say, the one thing that was a surprise to me was he's slightly more. He seemed slightly more cowed uh, and quiet than the Hancock I knew. Um, and I had no idea he was such a horrific dancer. <laughs> I think that was the... I mean, oh, my God. Uh, we were talking at the start of this, when he start, when we went in about, oh, you know, he's going on to the Masked Singer. He's clearly trying to carve out a job on uh, Strictly because... That's right. In the Anne Widdicombe mould, because, my <laughs> gosh, can that man not dance? This is a theme. How many politicians have you seen dancing between the two of you? And were any standout and brilliant? Do you know who's a great dancer? Ian Lavery. <laughs> Tell us about <laughs> Ian Lavery. At an after Labour Party conference party. I first saw him on a booking bronco and I got the impression that he was really good at the booking <laughs> bronco. I could sense that like it's a man who knows how to move. And then yeah, you've seen him dancing and yeah, can confirm Ian Lavery can bust a move. Wow. So Ian uh, Lavery, MP, a man who knows how to move, particularly on a booking bronco. You heard it here <laughs> first. James Cleverly can bust a move as well. He's hey. quite a good dancer, yeah. What, oh, really? what is the con what's the evidence? I've, I've seen him dance. But, but what, uh, like at a conference thing or where? Yeah, I mean, honestly, they all merge into one. I assume it was a conference. Which conference it was, I can't remember. But I've gone to so many over the years and they're all kind of a a blur of gossip and booze. Um, but yeah, no, he can... I was, I was yeah, quite surprised by... How well yeah, can move. do you know who else can dance as well? Angela Rayner. That no. is a woman who knows. That doesn't surprise yes. me at all. I think really. that's predictable. Such good fun on a night out. Like, take away the politics. Like, she is good crack. She's really? honestly so fun. Such a good dancer. Always buys around. Yeah, 10 out of 10 recommend a night out with Angela Rayner. I can bet as well. She's probably got great stories about other people. You know, good, like, just good gossip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Oh, interesting. Talk, okay. Talking about buying around, I was once quite often at a party conference 
uh, you gather around the piano if there's a big grand piano in the hotel Very nice. and you will have a sing-along after the pubs have closed, basically. <laughs> um, and I was standing there one, uh, it was a Labour conference, and I was next to Billy Bragg and we were all belting out, you know, best of Billy Bragg and everything. And this guy comes over and goes, Billy, can I get you a pint? And Billy said, yeah, cheers, mate. And I turned around to Billy Bragg, I said, you haven't bought a pint in years, have you? He said, no, not since about 1986, love. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> Oh, man. Good. <laughs> I love that. Right, Ian Lavery, James Cleverly, Angela Rayner, all ones to watch on the dance floor, not Matt Hancock. We can clock that one. I think it's interesting to consider Matt Hancock and indeed what he does next. We know he's had 40 plus thousand pounds for doing the SAS programme, 400k for doing I'm a Celeb. I mean, frankly, if he doesn't retire and buy a beach house somewhere, he's probably doing it wrong. But anyway, watch this space. We'll see what the former health secretary gets up to. Let us go on then and consider Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. What do they stand for? Where are they at? And has Rishi Sunak's honeymoon come to an end? I think on, on that note, I want to first of all understand whether a honeymoon is a real thing, Kirsty. And when you become a new party leader or indeed a new prime minister, actually is that a thing or is this just a made up concept? No, it's a thing. Uh, whether it's a real thing at the, you know, the fag end of 12 years of a Conservative government or... You know, a, a long-term Labour government is a, is another matter. I think that you can uh, you can change the curtains on on the windows, but if a house is basically beginning to crumble and crack, the, that's not going to do much, really. Uh, I mean, I looked at the, some of the polling uh, before I came on today. There's been a slight uptick still in Conservative fortunes. I think roughly, you know, four or five percent uptick. Uh, having said that, it's still a gulf between Labour and the Conservatives. There's you know, I think Labour on something ridiculous, like about 48%, and Labour is uh, Conservatives are scarcely around 30%. There is a world, there is a world, two years is a very long time, there is a world where the Conservatives could scrape an, another election victory, but that seems increasingly unlikely if the Conservative Party doesn't get a grip of its own discipline. It's the intro was already horrific, but the real fate of this rests or dies, if you like, by the, the behaviour of the Conservative Party. And I think the thing we need to sit against the backdrop of this entire conversation is, to the British public, the Conservatives have lost almost a year by infighting, right? Changing their Prime Minister once, changing them again, you know. So almost a year of this we've had. And what has crept up over the course of that year. So those are the sorts of calculations the public will make. So on top of a horrific intray, a lot of which is outside of any government's control, um, you've got this complete kind of backbench collapse in discipline and you've got a public saying, look, you lot have been, you know, infighting, like, you know, ferrets in a sack for a year now and you still want to carry on doing it as we enter this winter and I think if you do that, I think they've just drained away any chance they've got of, mm. of success. Frankie, what's your take on a, on a kind of honeymoon period for a new party leader? Did you experience that? No, not really. And I think it really depends on who the leader is. I mean, when Jeremy was elected, I mean, he certainly had a honeymoon period from the voters, the Labour Party membership, because there was that massive swell in support and people joining the Labour Party. And I think for a lot of them, they felt like Jeremy could do no wrong. And that took a very long time. It wasn't really a honeymoon period that lasted for ages. Um, but he certainly didn't get a honeymoon period from the Parliamentary Labour Party. And he definitely didn't get a honeymoon period from the press. So I think it's interesting to talk about, you know, who gets that 
honeymoon period? Is it somebody that's seen as safe? Do you want to allow them the space to be able to prove who they are? And I certainly think that Liz Truss didn't get a honeymoon period either. So I'm not saying it is a just a Labour Party thing only or a Jeremy thing only. I think, you know, the press was after Liz Truss from the moment that she got in. So I suppose it's who is it afforded to and how long it lasts. It's not really determined just by anything it's by who it is right mm. in terms of the press kind of going for people or not a lot of the time actually and including with liz, Tr- liz truss i feel like the media was actually just reporting what was happening um and my my favorite example of this actually is is my my friend matt charlie the colleague on times radio who on the mor- the monday morning before she resigned he was literally on the on the radio getting text messages from Conservative MPs saying it's time for her to go, time for her to go, doesn't have the support, da 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 da, and he was reading these out anonymously, not you know not attributing them other than to Conservative MPs, and so while I understand I suppose why there may be a perception that it's the media going for somebody, actually in that context particularly it is just reporting what is happening probably on Kirsty's um, theme of that ferrets in the sack infighting that when you're reporting I- the reality. Is that the media going for people? I think the trust thing is a is a is a particular one. In so many ways, it's a a standout administration. None of them good ways. Um, but actually, what happened with trust is she got a, a kind of pre honeymoon. So in the leadership contest, uh, there were centre right papers that stood back and didn't take a position on either candidate, like the Sun, and there were papers that very clearly endorsed. Liz Truss, and they were the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and in Liz We Trust and all that kind of hoo-hoo. <laughs> um, and that kind of created this weight of expectation on her, which on top of, you know, just the horrific intray that she inherited, the same intray that Rishi Sunak inherited, there was a there was a ridiculous level of hype around this woman and her ability to, you know this sort of buccaneer approach, if you like, to the economy and she's going to do things differently and going for growth and all this sort of stuff. So that hyperbole that surrounded her entrance, if you like, from some sections of the papers, so that when it fell to pieces, I mean, you know, and I I, I agree with you, Callum, this wasn't about the media going for Liz Truss. The only thing that imploded Liz Truss's government was Liz Truss and her government and, and that spectacular budget where I mean I, I cut it out the other day for a, a variety of comedic reasons but that amazing graph of the markets it's still worth a look from time to time but it's absolutely gobsmacking to see it sort of fall off a cliff so I think that that that, that they imploded their own their own government mm. but and, and actually you know what Rishi hasn't had uh, as a prime minister because I think the media were a little bit kind of once bitten twice shy if you like uh, he hasn't had any kind of ringing endorsement or people really riding out within the media for him. It's just a kind of step back. We didn't back you the first time, so mm. we can't pretend to row in now. So he's been kind of left to stand or die, if you like, on his own uh, successes, which given, like I say, the intro that the government's got is, a, is an uphill battle. Look, let me be frank, I worked in Jeremy's office and I was very close by to people who were on what seemed to be a constant rebuttal operation. So no, I don't think it's true that it's just about reporting things. And I also think it's important to have an analysis of the British press, which is that overall, there are more titles that we would refer to as centre-right than centre-left. And it's just factual to point out that imbalance. And therefore, it's factual to talk about the different approach in which we approach the media and our politicians. And I think, you know, obviously, we reported on lots of mistakes that 
Jeremy's administration made. Like, I'll be the first person to put my hands up and say that things that were reported were bad. Mm. However, it's about the intensity of the scrutiny that comes from journalists. It's about the fact that you had, you know, reporters I know at The Telegraph who were told fine dirt on the Labour Party at the time. And we have to analyse the relationship that the press has with our politics and look at, you know, Allegra Stratton, for example, a journalist who worked at ITV, a place that's supposed to be impartial, very close friends with now, you know, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's uh, former best man. I think that's the partner of Allegra Stratton. And then Allegra Stratton left, you know, number 10 and number 11, and then went straight back into journalism. And, you know, it's important to note these kind of things. So then when we start talking about, you know, is it actually the case that journalists are just reporting on things or perhaps do they have their own political opinions and thoughts and is there political opinions and thoughts of editors at, at big newspapers? And I think it's important to point that out when we talk about the press and honeymoon periods. Journalists going into number 10 is 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 nothing new. I mean, Alistair Campbell was a, was a mirror man before he went into uh, to work for Tony Blair. The reality is, is that, our print media are clear in their political beliefs. They don't have to be impartial. They're not impartial. And I think everyone is well aware, if you like, of, of what they're reading. I mean, there is a there are more Labour readers that read The Sutton than read The Guardian. This is true. And I think you balance that all up against the breach of the BBC, which, I mean, you know, Frankie, I'm sure you'll disagree with me, but, you know, has a kind of mindset of a metropolitan, liberal, broadly progressive centre-left outlook, which touches every home, regional media. It's a massive, massive reach. So it's not just about, oh, we've only got kind of, you know, two or three centre-left newspapers and then all these centre-right ones. We've got this, you know, this massive kind of power of the BBC, which whilst it is preeminent job is to be impartial... One of the reasons that it's got this tension with the government and one of the reasons that some of the trust is beginning to bleed between viewers and the BBC, and we've got all these issues about the BBC, and I'm not saying there's some sort of like secret cabal of people like pushing an agenda there, but if you hire people from the same backgrounds mm. and the same kind of walks of life, you'll get this kind of groupthink. It's not some wicked, evil, left-wing conspiracy. It's just a group of people who have the same, share the same attitudes, and there's nobody in a room calling people out and going, hold on a minute, there's a need for a sort of challenge here, there's a need for diversity of opinion. And the reach of the BBC is huge and massive. Its responsibilities are great, and we've seen a, a constant sort of battle, if you like, between the government and the BBC over its ability to sort of make impartiality its number one priority in all of its output, not just news and current affairs, but all of its output. Do we think Rishi Sunak had a honeymoon? Yes or no, Kirsty? Uh, well, it wasn't a honeymoon either, but I wanted to go. <laughs> yeah. Very short and kind of bleak, wasn't yeah, it? No, it was I mean, no, I don't think so. I think there was what you would call a collective sigh of relief because the whole trust collapse had, you know, was over. And I think that few sigh of relief lasted about a week, a couple of weeks, and then people went, OK, actually, all the problems that were there are still there. Mm. Frankie? Yeah, I agree entirely with Kirsty. I think it was less of a honeymoon period and more that people were so exhausted 
by politics that people just switched off for a couple of weeks and then when they tune back in again they just went straight back into it yeah really interesting so that's we've kind of considered actually the press and the media which is a really interesting part of all of this and by the way have your say on that in, in terms of the media's input in, in these situations that we've been discussing since we started this podcast email us anytime the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com did the media does the media have a part to play in the political drama and in terms of undoing and giving a honeymoon granting a honeymoon or not is that how important and influential the media is in your view email us hello at whitehallsources.com still to come on the podcast we're going to consider strike action we're also consider the breakdown of party discipline that's coming up next have your say anytime email hello at whitehallsources.com and please make sure you followed make sure you subscribe so you never ever miss an episode again Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels that are your home away from home in London and Liverpool. Resident hotels provide the perfect base to explore the city. Maybe you stayed in The Resident in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference just a few weeks ago, or you may be looking for a base from which to explore London. You might even be on a political pilgrimage to Whitehall and Downing Street, inspired by this very podcast. Whitehall Sources brings you the inside info on politics. The Resident brings you insider info on your chosen destination. Go to residenthotels.com to become a member and secure exclusive rates, and the Resident teams will support you throughout your stay. This is Whitehall Sources, this week with Callum McDonald, Kirsty Buchanan and Frankie Leach. Please follow, please subscribe, please share, tell your friends as well. And you can find us online, of course. Just go to TikTok, to Twitter or to Instagram and search for Whitehall Sources. You can email anytime. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Let's consider the party splits, because I know this is something you'll both have had to deal with in your in your various times. And I, I think the insight will be so valuable here because... I remember it's been a theme of our podcast again is uh, the Conservative Party had a choice to make. It was either basically, you know, unite or die. Are you seeing a clear choice that they have made? Yes, the the choice in terms, and it wasn't Rishi Sunak's words, it was a, a kind of paraphrase of, of the message from uh, from his sort of addresses to the to the backbenches when he joined. But it was in terms unite or die. Looking at the behaviour of the backbenchers, they've chosen death. Thank you very much. You know there are rebellions over onshore wind farms, and they, you know, there are a significant amount of the Conservative Party want the government to lift its uh, effective ban on onshore wind farms in England. Uh, it doesn't apply to Scotland and Wales. There is a significant rebellion around the attempts to impose a mandatory number of house, you know, net house building on local authorities, and they want that to be a kind of advisory figure. There are MPs that are deciding, quite young MPs, deciding they're going to stand down at the next election. They've seen the writing on the wall, as it were. So I think uh, on the back benches, there's quite a lot there of people saying, well, look, actually, this is all going down a plug hole relatively fast. I'm going to 
either jump ship or campaign for my pet projects or do what is most likely to secure my seat at the next election and kind of government needs be damned, as it were. So I think there's quite a lot of that going on. It's worth bearing in mind that one of the many downsides of being in government for a very long time is you have a lot of people on your back benches who know they're not going to get back into government again. So you've lost all the kind of levers, if you like, power levers of saying behave and, you know, you'll get promoted. There's something like, you know, 100 plus people on the back benches who are former ministers. So A, they know the game and B, you know, they think their kind of career in that sense is over. So they've got nothing to lose except their seat. So I think you've got a lot of people with an eye to their seat rather than government. What is noticeable, though, at the moment, and I will tell you from bitter, bitter personal experience of what it's like when you lose discipline within your cabinet, that is something entirely different. And the one thing that Rishi Sunak and his team can take comfort in at the moment, that breakdown in discipline isn't rampant yet on the backbenches. It's there, but it's not rampant. And nor has it filtered up to the cabinet yet. I mean, it got so bad under Theresa May's government that sometimes you would have cabinet ministers who wouldn't speak freely in cabinet because they knew whatever they said would be out and leaked to the papers with a top spin on it so fast you'd get whiplash, right? So that's how bad it got. It was a complete breakdown of collective cabinet responsibility. Rich's government doesn't have that yet. We shall see whether that holds, but that is a significant and important point to to make once you've got that and actually what we saw under Liz Truss's government the first signs that she was in real trouble was at conference was at party conference when you started to see members of the cabinet briefing what they thought should be Mm. pre-briefing if you like things that weren't even actually policy yet but they were coming down the pike and they were trying to head them off so that is a big important thing to stress here right now It's a backbench. It's relatively limited at the moment. It feels like it'll grow and it's not filtered up to the cabinet yet. When it does, if it does, then it really is a kind of a path of no return, I fear. Frankie, does that resonate with you as well on the opposition benches and and that feeling of unity, lack of unity, you know, what is going on? How do you corral? One of the points, really interesting from Kirsty there, the lack of the lack of opportunity, I suppose, to say behave and you'll get promoted. And if you lose that, then where do you turn for influence over a broken down party? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing from the opposition at the moment is a very disciplined outfit. I mean, in terms of Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet, I can't actually remember any instances of seeing anyone in the shadow cabinet briefing against him. I know last year there was kind of lots of talk that West Streeting, you know, was on manoeuvres and it was like Keir's final days. And that very quickly disappeared. So, you know, credit where credit's due, they're clearly a very disciplined outfit when it comes to that discipline within the PLP. We don't see many apart from, you know, the classic backbenchers as part of the socialist campaign group who would always be, you know, criticising Keir, regardless of whether they felt like there'd been a particular issue with policy. We don't actually see Uh, much, you know, kickback from any of the MPs within the Labour Party. They all seem to be, you know, pushing ahead towards a general election. And I think if you speak to anyone who's even vaguely close to the Labour Party, what you'll hear is that they think that the election is near enough sewn up. All they've got to do is kind of stick together, keep pushing. And then when election time comes, it's, you know, it's theirs to win rather than the Conservatives to win. And I think the Conservatives feel that as well. You know, Dehenna Davison was seen as someone who was a rising star within the Conservative Party. You know, she really challenged that 
hegemony that you see from older conservatives. She was very progressive on social issues such as LGBTQ rights. And, you know, it seemed like she would really be the future of the Conservative Party. Now, obviously, it's important to point out that she won that seat in Bishop Auckland for the first time for the Conservatives, I think, in its history, or at least a very, very long time. So it's clear that a lot of those MPs are hedging their bets and thinking that they don't have a future in the Conservative Party, because everybody knows, I think it's clear to see, that when that election comes in, it's the Conservatives that are going to make massive losses and people are going to lose their jobs and lose their seats. So I'm not surprised that things are falling apart there, because what would bring people together to say, like, let's bandy together in the face of massive loss? Yeah, fair. Uh, just to lean a, a bit as well, then into your own into your own personal experiences of this, because this is the sort of insight that we love, because um, it gives a real idea of 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 how you deal with this. There's a kind of power struggle, I suppose, and at some point it tips away from actually the leader and his or her closest allies. Um, and I suppose it's about just trying to keep that that balance right. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've we've got like a, a sort of almost like a political seesaw now. And, you know, the Labour Party under Corbyn sort of dipped as the Conservatives rose and now the seesaw is going in the other direction. And and one of the reasons that that happened is the issue of entryism or the issue of, of the tail wagging the dog. Frankie talks about, you know, the sort of the, you know, the hard left, if you like, of the Labour Party. They'll always sit in the back sort of grumbling about what the sort of front bench does. And that is exactly the point. They are back on the back benches. They are a rump. At some point, under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, that rump became, you know, through entryism, became the party. The tail began to wag the dog. The leader began to serve the party's interests and broke the, you know, the connection with the values of the public at large. And so, you know, you had a party that cared more about Palestinian rights than jobs in Preston. And that is why you ended up with a... With her, because she's going to going to come back on me now. But but that is why you know you ended up with a that is a ridiculous equivalence. We're talking. I mean, like maybe I'll sound like a ridiculous Corbynista, but saying that the Labour Party cared more about Palestinian rights than jobs in Preston. I'm glad that you mentioned Preston because it was under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership that they got in a council leader in Preston who has massively increased. Uh, the building of council houses. It's turned around the economics of Preston. Um, if you actually have a look at it, it's called the Preston Development Model. Um, and it's an amazing thing that's happened to that working class area. And then, yeah, the Labour Party also cared about the human rights of people who are living in Palestine. But, we, you know, we revision history all the time on this. And I think this is something that we see all of the time when it comes to, you know, what happened with Jeremy Corbyn. It's this suggestion that, you know, the Corbyn administration didn't care about working class people. It didn't care about those towns in the Red Wall in the north. And it's simply not true. I mean, a lot of the support that you saw from Jeremy Corbyn wasn't just from BBC watching liberal metropolitan elites in places like London. It was people who lived up in Lancashire. It was people who lived in villages like Todmorden in South Yorkshire. And I just think that it's important to remember this properly because people do this. They don't tell the truth. And I'm not suggesting that you're lying, but I just think it's that revisionism of history. And it's important to remember it when we talk about anything like this. I think the worst general election defeat since 1935 isn't revisionism. It's just a plain fact. Something clearly went wrong between the connection of Labour Party values and the values of the people that it sets out to serve. Well, how do you explain 2017 then? Because it was the same leader and it was the same electorate, but it almost, you know, took Theresa May out and it pushed her essentially to the end of her parliamentary career. It was primarily a collapsing Conservative vote rather than a particular surge uh, in Labour votes, and actually the difference, the difference in those marginals was something like forty, fifty thousand votes in it. So, 
it's the classic thing of a first-past-the-post system. You know, that, that actually, you know, the seats and the votes don't necessarily uh, tally up. It was a small amount of votes that made a significant difference in some key marginals. But that's the point, isn't it? Those small votes, you know, dragged up the Labour Party vote to almost take number 10. So you can talk about it from a political analysis of, like, how they did it and why it happened. But, you know, if you almost win an election, you almost win an election. And Theresa May lost that election. You know, she had to go into coalition with the DUP. And I personally feel that it's that coalition that then set the course for the Conservative Party to essentially eat itself alive. Oh, well, there, there we are in ardent agreement. <laughs> <laughs> that that was definitely the beginning of the end, yeah, for sure. And that, but that can bring us full circle, can't it? Because uh, uh, then you, within all of this is the consideration of how you manage your political party. And at, at what point that begins to take priority and that begins to steal focus from actually being a political party because you're, you're simply trying to function. And I just, you know, am I right in saying that? That, you know, it does come full circle a bit and all that we've talked about there, which is so... Um, it shines a light, really, on the on the struggles of political party leaders. Speaks to how you manage the people, the the hundreds of people within your political party. Well, I think we miss out one key issue here, which is the role of the chief of staff in all of this. And I think, just speaking from personal experience, you know, that chief of staff, if you're facing problems within your party and with your MPs, can sometimes be the buffer that protects you from an early resignation to being able to weather the storm. And Kirsty, I'd be interested in in your thoughts about that? Because often the chief of staff is almost like, you know, the the hidden leader. They pull the strings and often it's them on the front lines dealing with MPs rather than the leader themselves. Mm. Uh, it is an interesting point. I mean, I, uh, I know Liam Booth-Smith quite well. I used to work with him um, and he's no pushover. So he is now Rishi Sunak's chief of staff. You know, and I can, I can tell you that. But I just think, funnily enough, I was thinking this yesterday when I was watching uh, Rishi Sunak uh, at PMQs, he needs a front of house bruiser. I think the issue that we've got now is that the Labour Party are trying to portray, not trying, they're, they're, you know, they're clearly their tactic is to say he is a weak prime minister who is not only at the mercy of events, but captured by a certain wing of the Conservative Party and beholden to him with the spectre of that old millionaire in Kent Farage looming in the next election again and that he's going to have to push more and more to the right again to appease his own party. So you've got that kind of thing going on. And then you haven't got a kind of a bruiser. Rishi Sunak has incredible strengths and talents, but I think if he has to f push himself into the role of tough guy, it's going to ring a bit hollow. He's a thinker, you know, he has great eye for detail, he's kind, he's clever, he's moderate, but it, it does feel like a party that's in need of a kind of bruiser. And what have we got? We've got Jeremy Hunt, who's a, a taller version of Rishi Sunak in terms of style, <laughs> as a chancellor. So you haven't got that kind of brown to blair, as it were. Suella Braverman, I just don't think is impactful enough and has got her own kind of, she's too busy rearguarding it. Who have you got? Barclay, maybe? Steve Barclay? But health sector is not the, the role for a, for a bruiser. So I do think it's slightly absent of that. But outside of that, you've, got, you've lost, just through sheer length of time that you've been in office, you've lost your biggest lever of all, which is the patronage of being able to say, be disciplined, behave yourselves, toe the line, and, you know, up the up the kind of career path you will go. What, what about um, the Labour Party, Frankie? When you, you mentioned the Chief of Staff, what was your experience of that 
person? Was that how crucial a role was that? Carrie Murphy is kind of the synonymous person when we talk about the chief of staff. Um, also no pushover. <laughs> absolutely no pushover. I've got a lot of love for Carrie Murphy. And one particular story that rings true about this whole thing is that during the coup, uh, when Jeremy's own shadow cabinet, you know, had decided they wanted to get rid of him. Um, what you have to do during that is to hand in letters of no confidence. But the crucial part of that is is the phrase hand in. Like you do need to physically give them Carrie was so adamant that she wasn't going to allow this coup to take place that she essentially barricaded herself and Jeremy into the leader's office, um, which is in Port Collis House in Westminster, and locked the doors so no one could physically get into the room like a war room um, to essentially save him from that and to work out how they were going to get out of that issue. And, and they did, and she you know, saved him for a a good number of uh, more years to come. So I think that thing about the bruiser is really important. I'm not saying she is a bruiser, but, you know, Carrie had a reputation, uh, which I'm not going to use the word, but don't F with me. And by default, you better not F with him because you'll have me to deal with if you do. And I don't think Rishi Sunak has that. I mean, I don't get the impression that Rishi Sunak goes around saying, don't F with me. because he's I, just... can, I can absolutely assure you he does not. <laughs> yeah, he's just too soft. And I'm not saying that what I'm looking for is a big, aggressive leader. But, you know, he doesn't give the impression that he isn't a pushover. And I don't get that impression from his cabinet either. I mean, we talk about Suella Braverman. I just think she's a bit of a comedy evil figure but she doesn't concern me in that way you know I feel like I could take her on in a fight at the back of the pub verbally and that's what you want isn't it you want someone who's going to be in your corner who if you get into a bit of an argument with is going to absolutely you know wipe the floor with you and I don't get that impression from anyone around Rishi Sunak. Well it's the other you know it's the point about the uh, chief whip again as well isn't it Wendy Morton who was Liz Truss's chief whip uh, the principal objection to her was that she was too nice mm. um, I think the same charge is being levelled at Simon Hart you've got a tightrope to walk here now because you're criticised for being too nice if you get a kind of bruiser that's relatively effective in the job then you're criticised for bullying uh, you know it, it's a very difficult balancing act to do what you've lost in essence, of, of the patronage of is all the ability to just do it through baubles. You know, so you, you, you're losing your carrot. Your carrot's become this thin, shriveled thing that's, like, hardened in the, in the permafrost of a, of a winter of, you know, discontent. What are we on about again? Uh, I've gone to, from baubles to carrots. I don't... My my metaphor is failing. Kirsty's metaphors me a, are second to none. My favourite from a couple of weeks ago. Someone send me a lifeboat and, and rescue me. <laughs> my favourite from a couple of weeks ago was yes. This sounds like can being kicked down road because can is full of worms, <laughs> 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 which is wonderful. Right, so we've got the frozen, wizened, shrivelled carrot in a permafrost of what doom? Okay, okay. Oh yeah, I don't know. Anyway. The, the, <laughs> I've now entirely lost whatever wittering point I was making in the first place. Uh, well, you were about ruling, uh, you know, sort of ruling yeah, and, and look, persuading yeah. with baubles. What, what, yes, what do you do when you've lost all your carrot because you've been in office for 12 years? You can't say to people, oh, you know, do this and you can become a, a pus one day, my son. <laughs> you can't do that anymore. You can't, like, really put the thumbscrews on people because then you'll face accusations in the press of bullying. And if you try and be nice, then people complain that you're too nice. I mean, you know, it's a sticky wicket, like many other things, of being a prime minister at the fag end of 12 years of a government. I don't, I don't envy them at all. It's the kind of offer, isn't it, to backbenchers, like, if you work hard enough, you too could be, you know, chancellor for a month. 
It's not that tantalizing, is it? Yeah, that's so true. That is absolutely true. Um, what about what about in your day then, Kirsty? We heard about Carrie Murphy barricading the office of, <laughs> of the leader of the opposition. Have you got have you, you, just examples of how party discipline can be restored slash enforced, whatever? I'm I'm sorry. I work for Theresa May's government. Uh, at what point did we? <laughs> I mean, the entire... Look, so so because we ended up uh, uh, where we ended up after the 2017 election um, and because we were trying to reach a, a compromise Brexit in a in a parliamentary party that for which compromise was a dirty word, uh, you know, we used things like, you know, common sense and reasoned debate and you know outrageous. appealing to the to the greater good of a country and and to serve the public and to respect the referendum but you know also respect the fact that people had different opinions and all these kind of things that that fell on all sorts of deaf ears uh, and we ended up with historic parliamentary defeat after historic parliamentary defeat and eventually our little Sharabang of compromise, you know, ran out of petrol. Right? We, had to, we, had to, we had to pull off the road, and you know, <laughs> I have a great story about this, Kirsty. And I wonder if this ever came back to you. But during the the days of the Brexit votes, um, where it was clear that Number Ten were on a bit of a sort of like secret operation trying to get Labour MPs to vote for the Brexit deal, I was on the phones in Jeremy's office, and I used to answer the phone um, to all number of interesting calls but one day I got a call from number 10 uh, and I answered the phone and they said hello and I said yes how can I help you and they said is this Ed Miliband's office and I said no it's not Ed Miliband's office this is Jeremy Corbyn's office how can I help you and they said oh we're calling from number 10 do you think you could put us through to Ed Miliband's office <laughs> <laughs> and I just went no oh my and word. put the phone down and I went into Jeremy's office where Gary was sat there with the political secretary who were gaming what was happening um, with the votes. And I just walked in and said, I think number 10 are trying to get Ed Miliband to vote for the Brexit deal. And they said, how do you know? Because I was just a lowly admin assistant and clearly this was big gossip. And I said, well, they just called asking to speak to him. <laughs> and then when I said it was us, they asked me to put me through. <laughs> so, a slick so operation, Kirsty. A cautionary tale for all those people on Twitter that think that government is racked by conspiracy theories <laughs> and full of malign Machiavellian like political geniuses trying to pull the wool over the public's eyes. Uh, this, this is more like the truth. Um, uh, why on earth we ever thought that? I don't know who ever thought that Ed Miliband was ripe for a switching because that's. That's insane in its own right, but uh, yes. As I say, government is 99% cock-up and only 1% conspiracy. So just I to felt be... quite bad, because it was obviously my counterpart over in number 10. I felt like ringing her back, being like, don't worry, babe, we've all done it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just to be clear, Kirsty, you're distancing yourself from the Ed Miliband plan. Uh, I know. I, I was I was well well aware of Labour switches plan, um, you know, which was principally, by the way, you know, Labour MPs in red wall seats. I think that was the that was the point of it. And there was a substantial rump of the Labour Party 
that wanted to honour the referendum result that was in the manifesto that, you know, that whether you voted Labour or you voted Conservative in 2017, you voted for Brexit, you voted for out because that was the manifesto that both parties stood on before Labour decided that afterwards actually it wanted to kind of shift away from that possibly, if it could and get away with it and blame us, et cetera, et cetera. So... So actually, you know, there was... There, there, we not get away with it. Either. Well, no, and, and, and nor did we. It, it, it ate both, it ate both uh, administrations. But, but actually, the problem that we had with that rump, and it would have been enough of a rump if all of them could have been convinced to jump at the same time, mm. but this was all about kind of poor timing and mathematics. So in essence, quite rightly... You know, Labour and Peace going, like, I'm not sticking my head above a parapet until I'm convinced that you've got the numbers to get this over the line with the 20 or 25, 30 Labour MPs that you need. Mm. And until you can convince me of that, mate, I'm not jumping. And so actually, in the end, you only ever got four or five who'd stick their head above a parapet because it was clear to anyone with a pair of eyes that we were we were nowhere near where we needed to be to, to get it over the line. And I think that slingshot final vote that we had on the on the on the day which would have been our leaving was the closest we got. Um and even that fell, you know, quite some significant distance. I think every time we did it the the defeat kind of halved and halved. I think we had a couple more maybe would have got it over the line just out of sheer exhaustion or a war of attrition, I don't know. But but actually, that's why it was a perfectly valid and sensible tactic, but it fell because, you know, nobody wanted to jump until everybody jumped, if you like. Maybe it just fell because whoever was in charge of the phone book in number 10 made a colossal error. <laughs> I mean, we might not even be here now if that phone call had gone to I I feel fairly certain that... that we would still be here now. <laughs> this was not a narrow margin of error here, was it? <laughs> Whatever else it was. It's fault. Yeah, you never know. They might have ended up calling the Lib Dems. <laughs> Jeepers. Perish the thought. Good, right. Well, we've discussed the kind of the idea of a honeymoon, party discipline within that. And just as a final sort of couple of minutes, I wonder if we should consider strikes at this point as well, because I wonder if this is an outworking to some extent of, if I can put it like this, a lack of discipline in the, in the public at large. And I, I mean a kind of lack of support, a lack of unity. Um, and actually, the, the vast swathes of strike action that are either planned, underway or being balloted it actually is a real demonstration of a breakdown in, in unity. If you, if, you, if, if you see where I'm going with this, I'm kind of trying, drawing out the principles of party discipline to the, to the country at large. Frankie, what do you, what's your take on, on, on strikes, on Rishi, on Keir, the problems, the challenges that these strikes present, or opportunities perhaps as well? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I don't think that strikes are a breakdown in, in discipline. I think what it is is a kind of breakdown in people feeling like they're material conditions are no longer possible for them to carry on in this world. I mean, what we're seeing from lots of workers across the country is that they've been suffering a real terms pay cut for God knows how long, probably as long as austerity has been going on. And I think that, you know, it's great to see that trade unions are supporting their members, are supporting them in being able to exercise their industrial muscle. And I just think that a really important thing to remember in all of this is that I think because people think that what happens with a strike is that people turn up to a meeting and just say, like, 
Shall we just go on a strike? If we had enough, let, let's let's stop working for a couple of days. That'll show them. It doesn't really work like that. I mean, what happens is usually you enter a period of negotiations with the employer, and when those talks break down, then the trade unions have to ballot their members for strike action. So we talk a lot about how, you know, it's the trade unionists that are bringing this country to a halt. You know, the RMT are stopping people from being able to do their Christmas shopping by getting on a train. I think it's really important to remember that actually the companies are really responsible for these breakdowns in talks as well. And if they were so worried about their consumers or, you know, their customers or whoever it might be that's on the other end of these strikes, they would put more effort into trying to find a resolution. And I think for Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak, you know, the problem just isn't about individual strikes. We're talking about a drop in living standards for most people that are living in this country. And it's people who are organised in trade unions who are doing the initial fight back against those living conditions. But I think what they've got to be more worried about is the people that are not in trade unions, the people that are suffering so much. They're in, you know, horrendous accommodation. Like we saw that terrible story of that child that died in a flat that was a housing association flat because the mould was out of control. You know, the standard that we've seen for people's housing, you know, people's work, the wages that they're earning, you know, it's really falling. So I think the strikes are a good way to temper the general mood of the country, which is that people have had enough. And that's a problem for Rishi and Keir and any politician who's in Westminster, not just the person who's the prime minister at the moment. Uh, me? Yes, please. <laughs> that, 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 that's a lot to come back on. Um, look, I think, uh, I think there's a number of points to make here. First of all, uh, where I do think uh, what the uh, Conservatives' year-long psychodrama, uh, where I do think this is pretty unforgivable, is, if you like, is quite a lot of this was a long time in the making. The RCN, although to be fair, the RCN said, oh, it's our first strike in our 106-year history. Well, it wasn't until this year that they changed the constitution to allow them to strike, so I'm not entirely sure this is a, a, a terribly fair kind of point to make. But nevertheless... No one is going to disagree with the idea that nurses go on strike with a very, very heavy heart and they only do it because they are desperate. And one of the things I've heard RCN members say over and over again is we asked and asked and asked to see, you know, health secretaries, you know, throughout the course of the year. And they were too busy, you know, stabbing each other in the back and strangling, you know, and all of that to actually turn around and have conversations with her about how difficult things would become. Now, obviously, Steve Barclay uh, is talking and negotiating with the unions, but we are, you know, months behind where we where we should be. Uh, I think with the uh, with the RMT now that obviously, you know, that came up quicker than this, but. You know, Harper is negotiating with the unions now. It's a much more constructive relationship. But no matter what the relationship is, there is a fundamental point here, right? In a post-pandemic supply-side crisis, which has been exacerbated by an energy crisis caused by the, the war in Ukraine, these problems are being felt right across, you know, the kind of right across Europe, right across the world, in America. You know, interest rates are rising everywhere. Inflation is soaring everywhere. This is not a problem that is unique to Britain. So I think, you know, it is important in some senses to get a, a sense of where we sit on this in, in comparison to everybody else. We are heading, according to the IMF, into a global recession in 2023. We should pull out of it in 2024, but only if we do the right things now. Which brings us point back to the point about inflation-busting pay demands in terms of strike action. I entirely sympathise with the point. I entirely understand why people are at breaking point. 
But the point about that the government makes is not an unreasonable one either. If you meet these now, you will only fuel inflation and make it worse. You will make our recession deeper and longer than it needs to be. So everyone deserves a fair pay award this year, but not at a point where it is unaffordable. And the government is not alone in that. Where Streeting himself has said quite clearly that the demands of the RCN of nurses for inflation plus five, which works out about 17%, is simply not affordable in the current economic climate. So we can continue, and I absolutely have sympathy and I understand why people where, where, where are where they are, but this isn't a political point, this is a reality check point. If you, if you meet those, we cannot afford to meet those demands, and if you did, all you would do is ultimately make things far worse for people for far longer than they need to be. And another point about, you know, the rail strike, the people that are impacted most by this aren't people like me. If they rail strike, I can work at home. The people that are most impacted by rail strikes are key workers who quite often need, you know, uh, trains to get to work. So, you know, this kind of man of the people kind of shtick that, that Mick Lynch has got going on here, it's key workers that really suffer in rail strikes. But the thing is, is that, you know, strikes will impact people because that's the point of them. I get really, you know, I find that point... I get it, but I find it difficult to swallow because the whole point of a strike is to disrupt. Now, obviously, it's not ideal that the people that are being disrupted are key workers. But does that mean, therefore, that train workers aren't allowed to strike? It's that same point that we talk about people who are working in A&E. Obviously, they provide an essential service. But the point still stands is that you should have the right to withdraw your labour if you feel that the working conditions that you are working in are simply untenable. And I totally hear your point about inflation busting pay rises, but there's just two points that I want to touch on quickly. The first is that because wages have stagnated for so long, we are now in a situation that people are demanding these massive pay rises. It's not because suddenly people have got greedy overnight and have decided they need loads more money just to sort of spend on holidays and expensive cars. This is because the cost of living has risen so extortionately that wages have stagnated for so long that they can't afford things like their heating bills or to pay their mortgages. And the other thing about we can't afford it, yes, for some public services, I can understand why there might not be enough money in the pot. But for organisations that are private companies that are doing profits, dividends and giving shareholders money back then absolutely I think it's fair enough for workers to ask for more money. And that money should be coming from profit margins. It shouldn't be coming from the expenditure of how much it costs to run that business. Royal Mail is a really good example of this. Like, you know, the salary that the boss of Royal Mail is on is frankly insane when we talk about the working conditions and the pay that it costs for posties and people who work in those warehouses. And I just think it's really important to remember that when we talk about this, like the government is right, but that's where we talk about things like a windfall tax. That's why we talk about, you know, taxing companies on their profits better, putting that money back into the local economy. And when workers earn more money, the economy works better because they spend that money back in the economy. They don't put it, you know, offshore in somewhere like the Cayman Islands in a trust never to be seen again. Um, OK, so no one uh, is accusing uh, striking workers of being greedy. I think we all accept that this is born out of genuine sure. real struggle. That's fine. There is a point here about debt, though. The reason that you want to bring inflation down as quickly as possible and squeeze it is because our economy is being crippled by the levels of debt that we have racked up to support workers, quite rightly, and companies through the pandemic, right? 
Now, debt needs to be serviced. That costs a lot of money. Once you start to bring debt as a proportion of GDP down, that is money that you then free up for public services again. All of this happens faster and quicker if you don't make the inflationary situation that we already have worse by meeting these pay demands now. It's not, you know, this isn't a matter of this person is right and that person is wrong. These are really desperate times. The, 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 the quickest and surest way to get people back to a, a decent living wage where they don't have to go, hmm, shall I heat my home or shall I feed my children today, mm. is to squeeze inflation out. It is the destroyer of everything. It's the destroyer of growth, of jobs, of livelihoods. And the faster you squeeze it out of your economy, the better it is for everybody. In terms of just as a concluding minute or two from each of you, in terms of the political headache or otherwise that this presents the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition, just a sort of quick take on that as well, because I think the strategies around these strikes over the next, certainly over the next couple of months, it would seem, potentially into the new year, unless resolution obviously is forthcoming. But the legacy of that headache could be quite prolonged. Um, so, Frankie, let's start with you. You know, headache, opportunity, what is this for the leader of the opposition? I mean, I think it's a headache um, in the sense that we look at the strikes in the round and this is a drop of living standards and it's a sort of wake up call that people are really struggling and that's not going to get any better anytime soon. So what the Labour Party needs to do is present an economic plan that means that people don't feel like they're going to have to do this every 10 years. I mean, I can still remember our last recession and I'm not that old and it feels a bit like, you know, being ambitious in this country, wanting to buy a house, be able to afford childcare is becoming really unattainable for people and people aren't asking for much. That's what I would consider to be a good standard of life. And what the Labour Party needs to show is that they're going to bring that back for people. And Kirsty, headache, opportunity? Uh, I, I, I don't think it's an opportunity. Obviously, you know, it's a challenging time. I'd just say that having the right to strike is not the same as whether it is right to strike. If you uh, bring the economy to a halt over Christmas, as the rail unions are proposing to do. You squeeze £1.5 billion out of the nighttime economy. That's, you know, restaurants and pubs and clubs, which employ tens of thousands of people who are all, who desperately need those jobs. They've managed to battle their way through a pandemic, come out the other side. They are desperate for a Christmas where they can bank on some bumper profits. And this is utterly going to destroy it. So, you know, you can strike, but, you know, I think if the government had one thing to do right now, it would be plead, continue negotiations to continue to, with the unions to say, you know, you have a right to strike, of course you do, but please think about the impact that you have on other people and the wider economy by striking over Christmas. Thank you both very much. We started with dancing politicians. We uh, we, we we worked. It got with... really serious, didn't it? After we got on about Matt Hancock with frogs on his head, That's it right. all just it went downhill from there. <laughs> we worked out whether uh, Rishi Sunak's honeymoon. Well, it probably didn't really exist. Actually, we heard about a chief of staff barricading herself and the leader of the opposition into an office, and we uh, we wrapped things up with whether strikes are an outworking of lack of discipline or indeed uh, just a real dissatisfaction with the way things are. Thank you, Frankie and Kirsty. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. This is Whitehall Sources. You can have your say on all we've been talking about, of course. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. We've only got a few episodes now until Christmas. Lots more to discuss, and we will do that with you next Thursday. We'll speak to you then.
This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.